Welcome back to Women of AB Poly. I'm your host, Deirdre Mitchell McLean. And I'm her perpetually outraged co host, <laughs> Kathleen Smith, AKA Kiki Planet. And today we're going to talk about, well, as I said earlier, something that normally we people don't talk about carbon pricing. Because there was a thing, you know, a week ago or whatever that, that, that graced some headlines. Um, <laughs> just a few, to just, yeah, just a few. Here and there. Um, and so we have invited from the University of Calgary. Actually, both of you. Oh, we're lopsided again this week. Um, from the University of Calgary, we've got Dr. Jennifer Winter. Uh, so I'm, am, yeah. <laughs> I'm an associate professor in the Department of Economics, and then yes. I'm seconded to the School of Public Policy, where I'm scientific director of energy and environmental policy. Okay. Yeah, it's that's an incredibly I, lengthy the, title. It's a mouthful. Whenever it's I have mouthful. someone on from the UC, I'm always like, all of it, all, all of that. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have from the University of Calgary uh, in the Faculty of Law, Kristen. Oh, I was going to ask this, Kristen Vanden Beesenbos. <laughs> that's pretty close. Oh, pretty close. <laughs> it's. You were very close with the last name. It's Van de Bees and Boss. And uh, I'm an associate professor at the University of Calgary. I'm actually cross-appointed between the Faculty of Law and Haskane School of Business. I'm the academic director of the Center for Corporate Sustainability. And I do research uh, electricity markets, including the integration of renewables, energy policy more generally. And Jennifer and I actually are working on a project to look at methane regulations across the country. So this is, uh, in unfortunately for Jennifer Winter, she has to see my face like on a semi-regular basis, including right now. So <laughs> it's always fun. Always fun. <laughs> well, and Calgary see. is very well represented today on the podcast, oh. Deirdre. Yes, yes. Um, and so were you saying that it was lopsided because you don't have anyone from the University of Alberta? Yes. And and normally I try it, we try and do like a like a north-south thing because Kathleen's in Edmonton and I'm out in Strathmore. Uh, so yeah, we, we do, tr I try usually, um, but you know, I found you and I was like, Ooh, <laughs> like, I would like to have, I would like to have Kristen and Jennifer on yeah. at the same time. So I'm just yeah. really excited about having two more highly educated women here to chat with us really. Right. That too. That's the best part. <laughs> I don't even care where they're from. <laughs> and so I wanted to start for our listeners with a little bit of, you know, background like you, like you were talking about uh, the methane regulations that you're researching, but what what sorts of things are you doing? Um, because Jennifer, I think the first time I ever saw you was at the uh, it was an, an energy and environment panel. I think that was the first, and that was with uh, Steve Williams. Preston Manning was there. Uh, it was it was an all day thing, and that was the first time that I actually heard uh, heard you speak. Uh, yeah, so that was a um, yeah conference about environmental policy and more specifically um, emissions pricing. Yeah, and I got to be the economist on the panel and you know <laughs> explain to the business community in Calgary that actually carbon pricing isn't such a bad thing and it can be an effective environmental policy. And it wasn't like you weren't the only person saying that at this particular event. And that was the first time I'd heard Steve Williams uh, speak as well. And I was going through some of my own research because I've been watching this stuff too. And I was actually 
it was Mark Little when he replaced uh, Steve Williams and just kind of how the narrative didn't change of Suncor. And that was something that people were talking about at the time. You know, is that why Steve Williams isn't there anymore? But Mark uh, Little came in and basically just picked it right up. And and he has been, in a sense, advocating for the energy and environment balance in a way that I hate it, but we just don't see this in Alberta, right? The headlines, when I when I saw his interview, it the headlines weren't in Alberta. They were actually from Ontario. And so I'm just curious if you notice that that's a little bit of an issue <laughs> with some of the information that's coming out in, like, in, in our news and stuff, too. Yes and no. I mean, it's disagreement that makes headlines, right? This is true. <laughs> and so the fact that there is a vocal group of Albertans or Alberta politicians opposed to you know, carbon pricing in general and federal carbon pricing policy <laughs> specifically is, you know, it, it's newsworthy. Um, but I also think it's important to remember that Alberta had the first North American emissions price in right. its specified gas emitters regulation in 2007. And there was like, you know, a, a nice brief period of time um, where there was actually cooperative federalism and agreement on emissions pricing across the country. And, you know, Alberta was a leader at, at the table. Right. So, I mean, it, it's, um, I, I think, you know, it's a caricature of Alberta to say that most people and most businesses are opposed to emissions pricing. I, I think mm -hmm. what they're looking for is, um, consistency in policy. Right. Which makes sense. What would you say that Albertans are the most misinformed about when it comes to carbon pricing? What is it that, that the general population should know that maybe they don't really know right now, but would be helpful? That it works because people respond to incentives. That is why uh, Black Friday and Boxing Day sales are so effective. It's because we respond to incentives. It's the same principle behind emissions pricing, except that in that case, you're pricing something that we don't like rather than uh, decreasing the price of something that we do like. So much the same as we did with, say, tobacco products and jacked up taxes on them in the hopes that they'd become uh, unaffordable or at least, you know, we'd feel it in our pockets so we didn't smoke as much. Is that kind of, I know that's a very simplistic way of putting it, but if we're trying to get un, uh, people to understand the importance of a carbon tax, is it that same sort of philosophy behind it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not really the, um, the same problem in that um, emissions are a, a global collective action problem. Yes. And, um, you know, tobacco and, and smoking, first and foremost, you're hurting yourself and that has effects on public health care. But it's sort of it's, it's a different level of effect and it's a different type of externality. So, Kristen, when we were when you're looking at um, like global energy initiatives and how to bring those locally, 
-hmm. Are you looking at what's going on outside of Alberta and Canada to, to get ideas of what is working somewhere else? Or are you actually like, are you actually researching what's going on and saying, okay, these are the standards that are being set? Well, I think, so what interests me about Alberta is that it is a, an economy that's dependent historically and presently on fossil fuels. Mm. So that puts it into a unique position among the Canadian provinces in terms of what kinds of incentives and programs are actually going to be most effective, because you really have to balance, you know, on the one hand, we want to achieve meaningful reductions in greenhouse gases. But on the other hand, we want to do it in such a way that it's not going to cause, um, you know, crippling economic harm. Um, and one thing that's interesting about carbon taxes is that, uh, and Jennifer has sort of alluded to this already, but carbon taxes or really carbon pricing is something that was sort of created as a market oriented mechanism that could actually create a sort of secondary market for people to trade in carbon credits. Mm-hmm. And it's been very access- successful in many places. And, uh, you know, it was successful here before the carbon tax was repealed and replaced with the tier system, which is what we currently have. And the tier system is also a system that sort of works on this idea of credits and offsets. And so they have been very successful in many places, including places like Texas, Colorado, and places like Southern Germany, where these are also places that have been economically dependent on fossil fuels for a while. And they've successfully been able to bring in clean sources of of, uh, electricity in particular. And they've also been able to achieve some uh, real measurable reductions in greenhouse gases through these types of programs. Mm -hmm. Like you said, so headlines and, and, you know, normally how Kathleen and I are spending time is we're looking at what other people are saying and, and not necessarily what, um, not necessarily what it's the experts that are saying, but listening to, you know, people, I guess, back when you could go to a coffee shop, but just, but you're, you're listening to, to people who don't have the background and aren't listening to the background. And one of the things that really shocked me when I first started really paying attention, to this was <laughs> number one, how much research I did have to do because, because it wasn't very, um, to me, it wasn't well represented. Uh, the many things that we have been doing, the many things that we were doing, uh, the number of companies that that are moving in this direction, it doesn't seem to me, and from what I hear, you know, out in the public sphere, that that people are aware of, of how far this has actually gone. Like that it's not, oh. it's not brand new. <laughs> no, no, it isn't. And in fact, um, uh, you know, major multinational oil and gas companies have been behind a carbon tax for years. Because what are the other alternatives, right? I mean, when you think about why, from a legal perspective, why do we choose to regulate certain industries and not regulate others? And it's generally because there's something about this industry that if we just left it to the free market, the free market wouldn't address a persistent problem. And the problem here is carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. This is a type of, it's almost think of it as like pollution that unless we make them clean it up, they're not going to because it will cut into their revenues. But if they don't clean up their own pollution, it's not like it just doesn't get cleaned up. It does, but we, the taxpayer, have to clean it up now. And generally we don't get around to cleaning it up until it's formed an actual problem. So um, that's really not the way you wanna be doing things, always slapping band-aids on a problem. And especially something like climate change where there isn't really a, 
a Band-Aid. Right? Yeah, Once there's no way to, to go level, back and fix yeah, it, you can't right? Fix it, right? It's not like physical garbage where you're like, well, I guess now that there's a huge mountain of garbage, we'll finally pass some regulations that say you have to pick up your trash. So this is something where we, we have to get these companies to do something about their greenhouse gas emissions, because if they don't do it, then the taxpayers left holding the bag for figuring out what to do about this now that it's actually become a much bigger problem. It's easier to stop this at the source and it's cheaper to do it that way too. And these are the companies that are releasing it as a byproduct of their operations. So why not have them do it? Why not say it's your responsibility? But so if you don't do something sort of market oriented like a carbon tax, then instead, you know, your other alternatives are to do things like impose very strict regulations that are very expensive to comply with. Yeah. And so that's the kind of thing where, you know, if that's all you're doing and there's no way out, the carbon tax actually says, you know, if you can't figure out a way to to adopt the kind of R&D, the kind of tech technology that would allow you to lower your carbon emissions, then you can continue doing your business. You will have to pay a carbon tax. Right. As and opposed think, to really strict regulation that would say you're either going to do this or, you know, you're going to well, go out of business. And unfortunately, historically, regulations uh, have at best resulted in fines. And what we've seen time and time again is that it's far more profitable for these corporations to continue doing business as they've always done and pay a fine because the fine doesn't come close to even putting a dent into the profits they've made from messing up our environment, right? Well, and the other alternative is just is not to effectively impose the fine and essentially let them get away with it. Mm -hmm. And then you end up with something like our orphan well problem where yes. those companies now no longer exist. So we can't say, oh, actually, you you should have remediated this. And now there's polluted wastewater everywhere. Could you please come and wait? You don't exist anymore. Oh, man, <laughs> I guess yeah. we have to, as the taxpayer, <laughs> there's nobody left to, to pay for this but us. And so we we don't want to be in that situation, especially since the the negative that, you know, the downsides of climate change are are the kinds of things they're like rising sea levels and persistent drought. Those are not the kinds of things that you can just go and clean up, you know. I want to jump in. And um, I think it's also important to remember that, you know, um, Alberta is fairly unique in that a lot of our emissions come from oil and gas and industrial activity, but for many jurisdictions, including in Canada, it's not just businesses, it's not just firms that are contributing to um, combustion of fossil fuels and greenhouse gas emissions. And that's the other benefit of emissions pricing or a carbon tax, that it's not just firms that face the incentive to change their behavior it's people, consumers, households, right? So it's, it, it's, it's an across, you know, ideally an across the board incentive to change behavior, to, you know, switch from a, um, you know, um, internal combustion engine vehicle to an electric vehicle, or maybe an electric bicycle the next time you change, or next time you think about changing your transportation options. And, and, stuff like that so and it also just you know it creates a lot of incentive for innovation not just reducing economic activity but creating new economic activity through new technologies and um, now we're talking about hydrogen right and this is we wouldn't have energy companies and other innovators pushing the envelope if we didn't have these sorts of incentives that are are widespread Right. And I think I do remember from that same from that same conference, um, one of the things that Steve Williams had brought up at the time was that 
the actual production of our fossil fuels, especially in the oil sands, we're looking at about, it, it contributes about 20% of the emissions and the other 80% is in the consumption. And so this was, Kate, but, Deirdre, but how long ago was that? Deirdre, can you maybe just expand on that a little bit for our our listeners, the difference between production and consumption? Because I, I think there's still a lot of Albertans who, they're having difficulty grasping that. Like that, why that would be? Yes. <laughs> and I think it's just, it's just because the the actual production of oil and or well of our oil and even our gas products they do have a certain level of emissions but the majority of the emissions actually comes from the consumption level so it's in your car it's your it's it's the driving it's the heating of your home and things like that like there are emissions from both it just so happens that there's actually less from the production side of it than there is from the consumption side and you could also think of it because we consume a lot more right? (laughs) Just as a rule. Um, But I think, like, I I want to think that that conference that that I keep referring to, and I couldn't actually find my write-up of that, so I'm not sure what the date was, but I think it was before our carbon tax came in, was it not? Like, before the NDP actually brought in our carbon tax. I think it was 2016, maybe 2016 or 2017. Maybe 2017, yeah. Okay, so Because I had that, I had that information when the NDP had sent out the surveys of what do you think about the carbon tax? And I was like, okay, <laughs> going back to all these things that I learned at this, at this uh, one day conference, which I highly recommend people go to, you know, if we ever get the opportunity again, or online, attend these things and listen to, to these individuals because they, they come at the conversation from so many different places that you, you do feel like you learned something by the end. <laughs> and I just remember, I remember thinking of kind of, of, of everything that had been said at that conference. And I kind of went, okay, I understand now why it's not just large emitters that need to actually be held accountable for the amount that they are polluting right? It, came, it, came, it was us too. And so, so when, that, when that survey had come out, I was like, I get it. I get it. I believe I actually did write, be gentle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand why we need this. I get it. Okay. <laughs> but, but this is something that seems to be, um, there seems to be some difficulty in getting I guess the general population to be like, to get to that point where they're also understanding why this is necessary. Well, but then we're not, we're not only fighting political rhetoric and, you know, the carbon tax being used as the perfect political football. (laughs) We're, we're also fighting the fact that for a lot of years, there were some major parties in this country that denied climate change was even real. Yeah, yeah. And it, that man-made climate change is a real thing that we kind of have to pay attention to, <laughs> right? I, I, I think that's one of the struggles we're having now with getting people to understand the importance of carbon pricing. And uh, we saw it just recently with the Conservative Party of Canada deciding to vote against acknowledging that <laughs> climate change man-made climate change really is real so I think that's part of the problem as well 
Uh, Kristen, could you perhaps explain to our listeners the difference between the carbon pricing we had under the NDP government and the federal carbon pricing that we're now subjected to as a result of the cancellation of the NDP carbon pricing? Sure. And uh, for what it's worth, actually, in the so you know that Alberta, Saskatchewan and Ontario all filed legal challenges to the federal backstop carbon tax. I think it's worth at least noting that none of the provinces tried to argue that climate change wasn't real. Right. So um, the the NDPs had an under the NDP, we had a, and I should also say we had a we had a carbon pricing system before the NDP, too. Um, the, so the first one we had was actually something that was put into place by the Conservatives. And so the NDP's version of the carbon tax was very similar to the federal backstop. Um, there are two types of kind of very, in very broad strokes, there's two general types of carbon tax. There's a flat tax, which is you get price per ton, no matter what the origin of the emissions are. So large emitters, small emitter, emitters, uh, consumers, everybody pays the same tax. British Columbia has that kind of tax. What Alberta had was an output-based carbon tax, which applied differently to different types of facilities. Um, and that's what the federal backstop does as well. The federal backstop, and again, Jennifer alluded to this earlier in the program, but the federal backstop was actually created in consultation with all of the then premiers of the different provinces. So it was designed to be acceptable to all of the provinces. It has a great deal of flexibility built into it. The one thing that it really does, though, is it sets certain minimums that are applicable across the country. And so each province has the ability to design their carbon tax the way they want to, whether they do a flat tax like British Columbia, output based like we had under the NDP, or even being part of a cap and trade system like Quebec and Nova Scotia. You can do it the way you want to as long as you can show the federal government that at the end of the day, the price per ton that people are paying for emitting over a certain baseline is consistent with the minimums that are put into the federal backstop. And if you can't show that, then the federal backstop will apply until you can create, unless and until I should say, you can create a provincial plan that at least meets those minimum or minimums, minimums I'm sorry, or exceeds them. Um, so the, the federal program is, is really quite flexible and it, it really doesn't apply unless the province either has nothing or it has a plan in place that just does not meet those minimum standards. So an example of that is Manitoba, right? So Manitoba proposed a flat tax of $25 a ton across the economy, but as part of the, the federal backstop, it was... Um, a plan to start at ten dollars a ton in um i can't remember now but increase at ten dollars a ton per year 18, yeah. until uh, until it reached 50. and just to add some nuance to what um Kristen said is the federal backstop is is really in two parts it's that output based pricing system for large emitters and then the flat tax for um small emitters so um not industrial facilities and households. And so that's where it really gets complicated because Alberta's um, UCP eliminated the NDP system, which was a combination output-based pricing system and household and small business uh, carbon tax and replaced it with a tweak on an output-based pricing system for large emitters. So it eliminated that carbon tax on small businesses and households. And then the federal government said, that's not sufficient. 
Yeah. We're going to impose the tax on households and small businesses. And so all the UCP succeeded in doing is losing control of the revenue from right. that tax on um, businesses that are not considered large emitters and households. But that could change if uh, if our premier and the government were to bring in an adequate carbon pricing plan, yes? Yes, yes, I'm nice I'm being today, Deirdre. <laughs> I'm so just being sunshine and lollipops. <laughs> and this was this was something I remember while this was such a big conversation, uh, whether we get rid of the the provincial program or not. And that was really the only benefit the whole time, it seemed, right? Like if we got rid of it because the, the federal tax had, or the federal program had already been implemented as of, I believe it was in 2019 that theirs actually came in. So at the beginning of 2019, that was the first year that, that, it, was, uh, that it was in place for all provinces. And so we knew it was coming. We knew that that was coming. And one of the things too that just you know was amazing for me to learn was that carbon pricing has been a conservative policy for well they were the first ones that were saying this is how you do this this is the market-based approach to dealing with something that is very specific to um you know to these industries that deal with markets and is this something, because I'm curious, uh, I just read in the last week or so, um, after, the, after the Supreme Court said, no, this is constitutional, um, or that carbon pricing was, and when, when I was reading it, I got a number that was only about 64 countries that are currently also doing this, and that's been a that's that's been one of the things that people definitely have heard about it makes us non or uncompetitive if we have this but that's not actually the case right no no (laughs) (laughs) so now we're really getting into the weeds (laughs) and i apologize to to everyone okay so it's like, well, I guess I, I had a very definitive no, but it's really, it's, it's, it's yes and no, right? So okay. it's, if, um, you know, the whole world is at some baseline, whatever it is, and Canada decides to implement a, a carbon tax or um, an I hate blueberries tax, what, whatever it is, right? Um, that is going to increase the price of those inputs. Right. And if no one else does anything, yes, Canada is slightly less competitive, but it's, you know, it's also the case that other jurisdictions have regulations around um, emissions that might not actually be um, an explicit pricing scheme. And so it, you know, it gets really fuzzy, but the, the the really wonky part is the output-based pricing system is a combination of a carbon tax and a subsidy to large emitters. And it's explicitly designed to protect them against those competitiveness concerns in the absence of inaction from other jurisdictions. And, okay. you know, there's, there, there's a plan to taper those subsidies and and things like that. But, you know, the reality is is we are not in a world where 
Canada is doing everything and the rest of the world is doing nothing. <laughs> we are not, <laughs> you know, there is lots of stuff going on and you know, th there's actually a real risk if, if Canada is um, laggardly and if specific provinces, which will remain nameless, are <laughs> laggardly, um, that will have a bigger impact on competitiveness when other countries introduce things like border carbon adjustments because other jurisdictions okay. aren't taking sufficient action in their view. And I should say, just uh, kind of building on what Jennifer said, I, I don't know if they, they use this term in economics, but in law, um, <laughs> we call this the race to the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't want to be the person who's leading the charge to be at the bottom. Yeah, right when I had to start digging into it. And so I, I always, like, I make it sound like this is all new and I know it's not new. That's what actually made me so angry about it is that when I did start trying to find this information, I found that it had existed for, for quite a while. And, but it just didn't seem to permeate um, my life at all. This information just wasn't there. Um, I was actually very angry when I first when the rabbit hole took me where it did. And I mean, I was getting more information out of uh, London in the UK. I was getting more information out of the US. I was not getting information from Alberta. And this really bothered me because I think at the time I was, so I was career coaching. And this was in about 2016, 2017 to 2018. And during that time, I was helping a lot of people from oil and gas who were, you know, very upset. And, and there were so many things going on from outside of our province that really became apparent that it, they were affecting things that were going on inside of the province, in, in, and in particular, oil and gas. And so, like, I, I think a lot of the misconception seems to be that, that this is just on Alberta that this isn't and and we keep coming back with things like no this is global there's a whole big thing going on outside of our borders um but how about like how do you break through that in a way that's actually registering with people <laughs> that's maybe a really really big question <laughs> podcasts yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's a start <laughs> talking to the media um you know op-eds blog posts that sort of thing because i i recognize that no one really wants to read a you know 30 or 50 page paper about carbon pricing <laughs> oh i mean Kristen probably does but yeah. <laughs> I, I do and i have yeah <laughs> But most that, people don't, right? Yeah. 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 We can't even get them to read the, uh, the SCC decisions. And that's the exciting, <laughs> thrilling stuff. So the thought of getting them to read the actual policy or, or legislation would it excite me, but I don't see it happening anytime in the near future. What yeah. could our governments um, at every level be doing better at communicating the importance of carbon pricing and how it benefits not only us, but also industry. 
And I'll throw that out to both of you. What what would you like to see every level of government do to uh, improve our understanding of carbon pricing? I, I think one of the reasons why you see carbon pricing in particular or carbon tax um, being so you know politically charged is because it it is based on you know some complicated economic calculations. It's not that easy to understand, especially when you try to dive into the sort of details about output based versus flat tax, why you choose one or the other. And then when you start looking at the details of output based pricing, why some facilities have this kind of a, of a baseline, why others have this. Um, some have, you know, some are allowed to meet their own best standards in the past. Some have to meet standards that are set by their whole industry. So there's all kinds of complicated ca calculations that go in it. And I think for a long time, really, experts were the only ones having these conversations. And there wasn't really much of an attempt to try to explain, you know, why these things were important to the public. And so I agree with Jennifer when she said earlier, it's really important for us to get out um, as people who work in these fields and, and to talk to people and, and to put it into layman's terms. Mm -hmm. I know I'm a law professor and the, the legal profession has tried for many years to make law so incomprehensible to people who are not lawyers. <laughs> and it, it worked. It worked. They did it. <laughs> they There's were no other explanation wrong. for that much Latin. I mean, we're not scientists. You're not wrong. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's fun to learn all that Latin, but at the same time, you're like, why, why are we still using it? So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's really important to try. And I think that's what you have to keep doing. I think you have to keep talking to people and don't let, because what happens is when you don't speak, when you don't communicate with people and you don't reach out, then other people get to have the mic. And they get to say, they get to set the narrative, they get to present these plans in a certain way. Um, and then it can be really difficult to change people's minds, you know? So somebody has already come to us and told us all about the carbon tax and they've told us how it's just, you know, a money grab and how, you know, it's going to put us out of business. We'll be anti-competitive with the US. China's not doing anything to fight climate change. I hear that all the time, that China <laughs> is not fighting climate change. Why should we? Yeah, and you can that's tell a like constant argument, constant it comes argument. up so much that, you know, that these are almost like talking points. So yes. clearly other people have been communicating these things. And so I think, I mean, the best thing you can do is really just get out there and, and tell people the truth as you see it. And, and, you know, this is, this is why we're doing it. It is not putting us out of step with the rest of the world. It's actually quite a modest carbon tax among the world of carbon taxes, mm -hmm. although potentially not if the federal government decides to raise it as much as they've talked about. Um, but it's in, in no way puts us into a, a position of being an outlier or doing something even really that extraordinary to fight climate change. And I think, Jennifer, I remember you saying again at that conference where you were like that economics was just not an easy thing to have a regular conversation about. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like even when I said we were getting into the weeds talking about the OVPAS, I glossed over a lot of stuff. And I walk around with the graphs in my head, you know, supply and demand curves. And I can explain why, you know, um, a carbon price combined with a rebate through the tax system is, um, you know, doesn't entirely offset the incentive provided by the carbon tax, but people don't believe me. And it comes down to income and substitution effects. And you don't want to know what those are. <laughs> but it's, it is like, um, these are uh, like everything behind what we're talking about is a relatively complicated economic model. I mean, it's 
if you have the tools, I, you, you'll understand the t intuition, right. but people don't have the tools. And then it becomes something that is um, hard to explain. And especially when you think about sort of the chain in explanation from, you know, an expert advisory panel to the public servants, to the political communication staff, to the press release, to the minister who has to give that press conference and try and explain what an output-based pricing system is to reporters. Yeah. Um, I've, I've invested quite a bit of time explaining what on <laughs> earth an output-based pricing system is to reporters using, you know, examples of widgets and things like that. Um, <laughs> And it, you know, and, and it's complicated. And then yeah. because it's complicated, it's easy to attack. And it's also subject to defensive political spin. And then everything just sort of disintegrates into <laughs> the, you know, regular political back and forth. And the same thing is happening a little bit with the Supreme Court's decision in the carbon tax case, too. I don't know if we're, if we'll have time to actually talk to that. But I should say that I've, I mean, not nearly as complicated as what Jennifer's talking about, but people have a number of, I've given a number of interviews about the Supreme Court's decision. Um, and it sometimes you can just tell that that people are convinced already that it it's some kind of takeover by the federal government and it's really yeah. overreach. And so it's it's quite difficult to explain. It's, it's actually quite a modest decision. It was very carefully tailored. It doesn't really give the federal government, you know, a lot of power to do anything but use a federal backstop carpet. Yeah, it's very so specific. It's, very specific. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, we're all we've been hearing, well, even before the uh, the Supreme Court of Canada's decision, we've been hearing a lot about activist judges. It's so cute. It's so cute I, when, when Canadians co-opt American language. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's, it has to be because these are not activist judges. No. The and, Supreme but it's, Court of Canada is not. Uh, the, no, no, at all. And uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the judges who ruled uh, in favor of the government's position are actually Harper appointed judges. Right. <laughs> That's kind of, and I'm not going to say it's entirely irrelevant in Canada, but come on, Canadians, we are not the Americans. <laughs> We're not fighting about who's going to end up on our Supreme Court, and you know, for yeah. the most part, our prime ministers don't handpick people in the hopes of them moving one way or the other on impending decisions but we still hear a lot of that and I think perhaps it's because our country is so awash in uh, co-opting American culture that there are people who honestly believe that this decision was the result of Trudeau's activist just judges which is not the case yeah, it really, yeah, it really isn't the case. Um, it's not a. If this had been, so I was my my training, my legal training comes from the U.S. And there have been times in the past where you can actually see what an activist Supreme Court in the United States looks like, where they take <laughs> something from the U.S. Constitution and they're like, now it's time to expand dramatically the jurisdiction of the federal government um, in ways that no one could have ever anticipated. And so you just, there's nothing. There's nothing like that in this decision. It's not at all. In fact, what the Supreme Court does in the carbon tax case is they only rely on their own past interpretations of the peace order and good government power. There's nothing in this opinion that tells us anything more about that particular power of the federal government. That's actually, for a law professor, it was kind of a letdown 
as like really not not one sentence about maybe you could use the peace order and good government power for something else. There's nothing. They use exactly the same test they've always used for it. They refer only to past cases. They don't do anything new. It's it's very conservative and very careful. See, that should make everybody feel good, right? <laughs> Except for the law professors who were hoping yeah. for something dramatic that we could tell our students, look at this, time to open up those constitutional law books and rewrite the section on peace order and good government. No, exactly the same. Same as it was before. Safe, safe. Nice and safe. Yes. These conversations are difficult. I love, I love the fact that <laughs> that we got to put you on the spot there, Jennifer, because this is because it's a huge complaint of mine because I do spend I do spend a lot of time, um, you know, watching things like Twitter more so than Facebook. And at least in Facebook, I, I, I hear that people can actually write out full thoughts and stuff. So <laughs> expansion. Um, but but because of because of that that quick thing that we've got going on uh, with a lot of our social media too, um, complex things. I don't even know if it if it makes it you know more uh, apt to be attacked in that way. But trying to simplify complex topics or policy in trying to in trying to do that to bring it down from the advisory panel through the bureaucrats and everything else it's I, I i pictured you know that nasty game of telephone where you're telling so many people and by the time you get to the end you're like that's not quite right <laughs> and there's and and i realized that that the language has to change right um you know the the science of it or the law or the legal aspect of it can't always really be broken down into something that is digestible for everybody else is it is it delivering it in bite sizes i'm kind of wondering because like you said there's a difference between output base and flat uh, and doing a flat tax okay fine so what if we did only talk about like how it's affecting households kind of thing like, does that actually make it easier? No, still not. No, if you just talk about how <laughs> it affects uh, households, you give um, um, certain parties uh, attack ad fodder. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, I just remembered. Yeah, okay. So there I is no... <clears throat> the way to explain it to... Um, or the way I like to explain it is... First of all, um, emissions and climate change, it's a collective action problem. And I think most people have some intuition about what a collective action problem is, even if they don't actually understand these words that I'm using, that it's, um, if everyone cooperated, we'd be better off, but everyone has an incentive to not cooperate and try and um, you know make themselves better off and at the end of the day we end up in a, a worse situation race right. to the bottom so if it's a collective action problem then it really becomes a moral issue right okay if if it's sort of like choosing to take the high road in the presence of others who may or may not, take the high road or may just try to screw you over, right? So, so to me that it's action is in many ways just a, a moral decision. 
And, you know, it's, it's a collective action problem within each province. It's a collective action problem within Canada. It's a collective action problem globally. And the reality is the distribution of benefits and costs of climate change are unequally distributed as well. And right. so we're like, Canada is more likely to benefit on, on net from climate change and other countries are going to have it really, really bad from, from climate change. And so that sort of adds on to the moral imperative. And then it's like, once you've decided that action should be taken, what are the options? I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then, yeah you're, then you're going now what? Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, what are the options? One is prescriptive regulation which requires monitoring and has high costs on governments and firms, as, as Kristen said, or you know, where appropriate, you can engage in market-based solutions. Um, and that provides an incentive for change without mandating change and without requiring governments to monitor and enforce in the same way. So, there's more transparency mm-hmm. with a tax and it's a tax, which is you know, like you know, verboten in Alberta and oh, in, definitely. <laughs> in many places <laughs> in Canada. But the fact that it is a tax means that there's revenue associated with it. And hey, there's transparency there too. So it's not, right. it's not all bad. So at, what is there any hope of changing in the the messaging around carbon pricing to get more of our population on board with it and to help them have a fuller understanding? Or have we now reached a point in this fight where we don't even bother anymore and the governments just need to do it? (laughs) Because that's, this is what I'm wondering about if it's even worth the time and the effort and the money spent on political messaging to help people understand or if those who don't understand are not going to understand or accept regardless. And so governments should just push the policy through. So it's not actually a carbon tax, actually. It's a regulatory charge, which the Supreme Court is <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> so we could just relabel it as a regulatory charge, um, which is slightly less offensive. So sort of like vanity, vanity she's, sizing, she's right, you know, where technically it's not a tax. Yeah. You're, you're really a six. It's, it's not. Yeah. A, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll go with that. But it, but it also kind of, I mean, Jennifer makes a really good point about relabeling. Although I don't know, I, I know people are really kind of split on whether or not to actually call it the carbon tax, because it's true that it's not technically a tax. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, some people feel like I'm not going to let, yeah, sure. I'm going to call it the carbon tax and I still love it. So there's kind of a take back the tax sort of movement too. Like, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to call it the carbon tax and I'm going to pay it. So... <laughs> I mean, and I think too, you know, one possibility is is also just really impressing on people. This province has had a carbon pricing system in place for quite a long time. Right. Whether you knew it or not, it was here. And so it's not been an economy break- making or breaking. I mean, it's much more, we're much more concerned about the price of oil being the predictor of our economy, not whether or not there's a carbon tax in place. Right. And certainly the longer it's there, and you just have to kind of keep reminding people. I mean, in places like British Columbia, I'm sure there are people in BC 
who don't like the fact that they have a carbon tax, but I think a lot of people are just kind of used to it. Is that, I don't know if that's a bad thing to say, but like, in a way, well, like the GST. Familiar, yeah, yes. you just sort of get used to it. Yeah. I mean, at first people get up in arms about these things, but then once it's been there for a while and you can see that it hasn't really caused the downfall of civilization as we know it, then <laughs> you just sort of get on with it. And the other thing about the carbon tax too, is that, that the more expensive it gets, the more revenue it generates, you know, and, and there's a questions about what you can do. Well, Jennifer's saying, maybe not, <laughs> but there might be some ways to, to be creative about what you do with the revenues, um, you know, down the line anyway. I mean, of course, now we're, we're giving them back to people in, in tax returns, but you know, there may be things to do with it further down the line creatively that could, you know, change people's hearts and minds too. Boom, boom, boom.